90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. How about yourself? Oh, not doing too bad. Uh, We have been spared the heat the last few days here. I don't even want to start talking about it because I don't want to jinx it. Like, it was, I went outside, I was up, I know you're not even going to believe me, I was up at 5 o'clock for two mornings this week. (laughs) Um, Wow, okay. Oh, yeah, it's just crippling anxiety, it's fine. Um, And (laughs) it was almost cold outside. It was 60 degrees this morning. Yeah. I I couldn't even... 60 degrees. It's August 5th. Unbelievable. So it's been rather lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been quite nice. Uh, so it's that's been a change for us. And then, you know, this week, uh, unfortunately, there's also been uh, quite a bit going on in the world. Mm-hmm. And we'll actually come to this uh, a little bit later in the show as well. But... There is, you know, the, the tragedy that's been in Beirut with the the large explosion there. Yes. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable video coming out about that, too. Absolutely. And, and if you don't believe the power of pressure waves, mm-hmm. this ought to convince you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unreal. Everyone was like, we thought it was an earthquake. Well, and it was felt over 100 miles away. And what really blows me away is in the videos if you slow them down and watch you watch just walls and roofs of buildings come apart and get propelled like hundreds of yards yes yeah the pictures are like the cars all like yeah Mm -hmm. that's pretty incredible i saw some video of a car that was driving across a bridge they were taking a picture or a video of the fire Mm -hmm. uh, before the explosion and when that explosion happened, this car, who is, I'm going to say, 10 miles away at least from the fire, uh, as soon as the shockwave reaches, all the glass shatters. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Uh, um, I mean, it was almost 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, you, I, you, I say you, like everybody reads these. I mean, I read these papers about the shock, the damage the shock waves on meteorites can do, you know, and you just don't think it's that big a deal. And this would be a teeny meteorite. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So if you're close enough to that shock wave, you know, literally turn you inside out, it's pretty strong. Well, and I thought it was interesting that the crater picture that i've seen so far today mm-hmm. it i really need to go do an overlay of that crater on meteor crater oh yeah because i think the scales are similar-ish okay with mm-hmm. this one being smaller mm-hmm. but uh, you know i think we're not talking orders of magnitude different here yeah oh that's uh, i haven't looked at any of the of the crater images, I'll have to check that out. And you may remember a few years ago, there was an explosion at a fertilizer plant in Texas uh, that was also ammonium nitrate. Mm-hmm. And I think I actually did a blog post on that, uh, looking at some of the seismic evidence from that. I haven't gone and looked at seismic evidence from this yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's yeah. clearly going to be massive seismic evidence. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it was somewhere in the three to four range uh, moment magnitude. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Yeah, that yeah. was uh, super tragic um, and really unbelievable, though. Yeah, uh, and still on the scale of geologic events, actually small. Yeah, incredibly small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, now for something totally different, Yes. as you would say, <laughs> which we've talked a lot about plate boundaries recently and a little bit about volcanoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there are also volcanoes that aren't at plate boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I had to think if we had talked about this, and I'm actually kind of surprised we hadn't. But 
We well, haven't. we're we're starting to get into the things where there aren't a lot of concrete answers. <laughs> Over this many shows, we've done a lot of the topics where we know mostly what's going on. Oh, exactly. Um, it's either we're down to this or like igneous rock classification schemes, and neither of us are remotely qualified to discuss that. <laughs> Nor is anyone. Uh, Well, that's, uh, yeah, I agree. Um, Yeah, so non-play boundary volcanism. There's volcanoes everywhere, and they come from these things called hotspots. And that's really the end of the show, because we don't know anything about them. (laughs) Even the name, we're like, hotspots actually, well, they might not be now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So we know that some volcanoes aren't on play boundaries, but yet they're still full of hot bubbly asthenosphere right so they have to get there somewhere um and nearly all these volcanoes uh these hot spot volcanoes and if you can't tell my air quotes that are going around that um (laughs) these nearly all of them are intraplate so this is one of my trick true false questions (laughs) is that hot spots are are plate boundaries because they're not (laughs) except for iceland right it's sort of both we can talk about iceland later it's real weird (laughs) Very, very special case. Uh-huh. Yes. And well, okay, we, we say that, but there's so many special cases on Earth. <laughs> it may just be that there's not a normal case. That is probably a better thing to say, yes. Um, so you said, uh, so hot spots are, were coined in the early 60s when all this plate tectonics craziness was going around um, by J. Tuzo Wilson, and he postulated that Hawaii was formed over a hotter part of the mantle, therefore the hot spots. But there's also this word that we use called m- mantle plumes. I use these interchangeably. I know they're not. <laughs> right. But the idea is for some reason, there is a hotter area, uh, potentially at the core mantle boundary. And you get just like a, a salt dome forms because salt's less dense than what's around it. You get this dome of less dense i.e hotter mantle that bubbles up over geologic time and creates a more thermally active more magmatic region under somewhere where there's not a plate boundary than it would normally be right um this is once again one of the billions of examples where it's like it's just convection it's hotter mantle than the surrounding mantle, so the only thing it's got to do is be buoyant and move upwards, right? It's a rock thunderstorm. It's a rock updraft. Ha! I said that in class once, and nobody laughed because it was an intro non-science class. Right. <laughs> and then I was that professor that was like, <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> um, yeah. As a professor, you are generally the only one that thinks your jokes are funny, uh-huh. unfortunately. A professor or a dad, that is true. Um, so, I mean, the question that I'm posing to you, (laughs) why are they hotter? Why is this spot hotter? Well, excellent question. Uh, So in classical conference form, I'm going to completely ignore the question and (laughs) answer something that I've already prepared. (laughs) (laughs) I even gave you a heads up. I mean, that question's on there. (laughs) Yeah, so... We don't know. Yeah, this is weird. Because they uh, are. It, <laughs> it could be some heterogeneity at that core mantle boundary. And we've talked about how the core mantle boundary mm-hmm. is a crazy boundary to start with. Right, yeah. It's a sharper physical contrast than the surface of the earth of rock to air. And air. That is unbelievable to me. So, you know, there's that. Um and also, it's hard to imagine a lot of heterogeneity in a solid metal ball. Mm-hmm. Yep, that is true. <laughs> but I'm sure there is some. But this would have to be a pretty large asperity, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Uh, I mean, okay, large on the size of, like, islands. Right. Not large on the scale of core. Correct, yes. So... I've always sort of gravitated towards the idea that these are potentially radiation concentrations. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. How do you generate heat, right? Right. Uh, That is backed up by nothing scientific other than me saying, this seems like a plausible physical explanation. Hey, you worked at Lawrence Livermore, right? That's 
That seems legit. I know. O- o- Oak Ridge. Sorry, <laughs> Oak Ridge. Yeah, that's right. You know. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my go-to is when in doubt, radiation. I mean, no one's going to prove that wrong anytime in the next no. two days <laughs> when this goes out. <laughs> um, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that uh, makes as much thing... sense as anything. The, the other thing that I could imagine is it's maybe that they're not hotter. It's that the material at that point in the mantle is a different composition and has different melt characteristics. I mean, they'd have to be like minuscule different comp. Well, I guess not because what you're actually melting. So whatever this thing is, why ever it gets hotter and forms this thermal diaper or meltier or meltier yes <laughs> um yeah maybe it's just got a lot of water right there maybe it's the ocean that's at the core mantle boundary <laughs> right that's doing it uh, <laughs> and so it comes up and it's melting the base of the lithosphere and everything that's right there too um maybe these hot spots break through at just thin spots in the lithosphere or maybe they're melting them from the bottom and they just make them thinner because they're that hot. That's not known either, which I think is kind of weird. Well, and I mean, there are some models out there, right? Um, yeah. Th- th- there are lots of melt models, one even called melt. Um, <laughs> but we need a much longer time series to really constrain what's going on. And unfortunately, as humans, we haven't been here that long. And as humans observing hotspots, we've been here even less long. Uh, yes. Yeah. That is exactly right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we don't know. And also, there is a very, well, okay, there was a very real possibility for a while that hot spots were actually not any different than what's around them, but they were simply cracks and weak points. Okay. and just That because, allowed this material to move. Yeah, you just because you make a crack, then it's going to squirt up it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And now there are cracks observed, and well, are the cracks there because there's movement of significant volumes of magma, mm-hmm. or are the cracks there as the root cause? It's sort of like is the lithosphere thinner because of the hot spot, or is the hot spot there because the lithosphere is thinner? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, in fact, one of the large proponents of the crack theory, uh, who was writing that side of the fence up into the early 80s eventually said you know okay we got some new geophysical data here uh for the crack theory to work we have to do some and we've all seen this in theories before where people do some pretty fancy mental gymnastics (laughs) so the theory still works Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and at some point occam's razor comes in (laughs) yeah that's (laughs) yes and cut and it you all. have to say <laughs> right and you have to say well that could be a possibility or this much simpler alternative could be the possibility mm-hmm. yeah exactly uh and so in i believe it was around 85 uh, he went to a conference and said yeah it's probably thermal okay. uh, so the crack theory is pretty much dead but uh, i am i am prepared for the deluge of hate mail it's crypto volcanic john uh, right. <laughs> i mean it would be yeah um yeah so 80s and now we still don't know what these look like right um but so we know sort of what we think these things are but one how do we even know to go looking for and doing our very western science thing so you're rubbing off on me of naming them <laughs> uh, yeah exactly but what did generally in geology we see something and we go huh mm-hmm. and then we start coming up with a way to explain it so what was the the huh moment for hot spots uh it's hawaii right yeah and you say yeah. hmm there's this chain of islands that is not at a plate boundary these ones on the end are pretty big volcanoes these ones on the other end are extinct volcanoes. How? What's happening? How did they get there? Yeah, and one explanation is if you imagine holding a blowtorch under something, 
and slowly moving that thing over it, you would get this trail of burned, melted material mm-hmm. as the plate moves over this blowtorch from below. Right. And that's exactly what Hawaii is. <laughs> with We think. Yes, we think with Hawaii and the man. I always forget what the seamount is in front of Hawaii, the newest Hawaiian island. I can't remember either, but yes. Yeah, so (laughs) that's the (laughs) blowtorch. Right. So that's where this hot spot, at least the surface expression of this hot spot, is. Low, high. There you go. Ah, there you go. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm what that hotspot connection actually looks like from the surface expression to the core mental boundary? Excellent eh. question. Eh. Pass. I, <laughs> I mean, there there's even argument over, well, is it connected or is it sort of like a global circulation pattern where you have different cells of convection that transfer energy? Right. I So when you're teaching this, I mean, especially in a non, non-majors class, you draw your plate and you draw your volcano and you draw your little neck that goes down to the core mantle boundary or wherever. And you're like, that's a hot spot. And then you, you know, the next time one time two, you keep that little bitty neck, but it's like, that's not necessarily true. And if you're looking at Hawaii now, it's like low high or low he, I'm sorry. I have not heard somebody say it. Um, <laughs> Uh, That's okay. No, nobody's ever said the uh, the most recent tropical storm name right either. Is he this? So it's it, Hawaii. There's still you know active volcanoes in Hawaii on the Big Island. So it's not just one singular one, right? Or else you wouldn't have this little seamount forming. So is it like branches of a vein, or is it just like you said? Is it more? less concentrated than that and it's literally just a big hot spot yeah and you know i have a really hard time seeing a thousands of kilometer long continuous convection cell tube having any kind of stability Mm -hmm. so i think this is probably very likely a stratified layered multi-cell heat transfer yeah i mean and that makes more sense but is that just your feeling? I, I'm not. That, up on that's my, completely my gut. Okay, yeah, I'm not up on my hotspot research, so hopefully that's me saying like, look how complicated atmospheric circulation is, and it's ten kilometers thick. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> this exactly. is a lot thicker. That's exactly. Yeah, and a lot juicier. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's really weird to think about, though. I think it's neat. And so I don't know if it's a disservice that we do that. In the last couple of years, whenever I have to teach intro geology, which I will this fall as well, um, I started giving this a little more time in class and being like, guys, like this is one of those intro things that we lie to you is we draw this stick and every diagram in every textbook is this tiny tube of magma coming up, right? And I'm like, this probably isn't true. It's probably like this. And I draw some weird, you know, branched vein looking thing. And I'll draw these weird cells that are convecting. I'm like, it's probably really nasty. And this is what it looks like. And it looks constant to us because it's slow. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And we're looking at it from above. We see that tiny little thing, the pinprick where it actually makes it out. And that's it. So, uh. (laughs) Well, and... This is one of those things where, and we may have students listening that this is exactly what they're working on, or folks listening that this is exactly oh, what they're working on. Let us know. Um, no matter what you find, somebody's going to call you crazy for at least 30 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're probably not even going to outlive the people calling you crazy till they're like, oh, no, they were brilliant. <laughs> and hate to say it, uh, <laughs> a lot of times, especially in things like this that are so unknown, we're going to have a dozen different theories of how this works and all of them are going to seem weird until something actually comes to light that helps us really understand what's going on. And then in hindsight, in 50 years, people are going to go, oh yeah, well, you know, it took them 30 years to figure this out, but now we teach it in intro. Oh, it was intuitively obvious to the most casual observer. <laughs> right. <laughs> most casual hindward looking observer. Oh yes, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah this is I always try to look this stuff up 
and it is, I'm always very surprised at how little we've advanced about it, I guess. Um, but I mean, why is it so hard to sense this stuff? It's really hard to sense it. <laughs> well, okay. It's deep for yeah. one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the physical, like what physical property difference are you looking for? Right. Yeah. Like, okay. Temperature and density. Well, density is really hard to sense deep and temperature not happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have to rely on all these proxies. And, you know, while you were talking, I actually just did this experiment. Um, and I encourage everybody to do this. Go to Google and type mantle hotspot and then click image search. <laughs> okay. You see a lot of what Shannon's been talking about, this little yeah. tube. <laughs> uh, you see some mushroom clouds. You see several of those. Mm-hmm. You see a couple of more complicated looking things. You see some that are like pencils going all the way down. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the pencil one. That's definitely how I draw it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and then finally down here, actually one of the more complicated ones that looks potentially realistic is from the National Park Service for Yellowstone. So way to go, NPS. <gasps> yes. Um, I pulled that up when I was researching this and I, because I was like, man, this National Park thing isn't going to have a ton of stuff on it. And I thought, wow, that's really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> a lot of these convection currents look like ovaries and a uterus, though, I will say. Mm-hmm. And they're really hilarious pictures. <laughs> um, anyway. <laughs> So, okay, remote sensing of this. We're pretty much limited to two things. Uh, Can you guess what the first one is? Or the second one? Um, Except guesses in any order. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Um, Putting animals down wells with temperature sensors on their back and hoping they survive. (laughs) Wait, no. no. (laughs) That's not it. (laughs) I don't know. What do we have? It's going to be something... I, I mean, what I mean, wouldn't you? What, what does every geophysicist do first? Well, seismic? No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> seismic. Which, like, what's that going to do? Well, so you're going to have a velocity change. A little bit. you go into bit? hotter, less. A little bit, but we're getting okay with global tomography. And if you've got <laughs> thousands of earthquakes and hundreds of receivers over years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can do a lot of tomography and start getting some interesting looking blobs. Okay. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of hotspot work really has been based on is blobs from tomography. Which is why all these images look completely different. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you can even find some of these tomography blobs. They're, uh, you, you might look at it and say, that's the best we can do. And that was probably five to 10 years of someone's life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And yes, that's the best we can do right now. Uh-huh. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's amazing that we can do that mm-hmm. because you're looking at minuscule changes. Yes, exactly. Because it's all molten rock down there. Right. You're looking at minuscule, well, plastic rock. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> yes. The, the mantle is not a bunch of lava as portrayed in the core. Uh, <laughs> but it's lava when it comes up to the surface. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, you're doing a lot of this, the seismic investigation it's because sensors have got better, computers have got better, so we can invert these massive data sets or try to invert them. Uh, that's probably the best tool we have, to be honest. Mm-hmm. The second tool, though, I've already given you the clue on it, is it's a density difference because of the temperature. Okay. Great. So what, <laughs> what method do you think we'd use for that? Uh, I'm, I don't know. That that depth? I don't know. What are you going to use? Well, what would you use if it was at the surface? What would you use if you were looking for density differences close to the surface? Oh, GPR? I don't know. Gravity. I don't want to talk about gravity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I knew it was going to be a geode thing. <laughs> it, uh, geoid, yes. The geoid is coming back to haunt <laughs> don't you. Don't do it. <laughs> so... <laughs> Gravity senses density differences, and it has Ugh. this size-depth trade-off where if you see a gravitational high, let's say, it could be something very dense, small, close to you, or yeah. it could be something huge far away from you. Mm-hmm. Non-unique solutions. Cool. <laughs> yep. Non-unique solution. Uh, and 
it isn't really depth limited other than the fact that as you go deeper, your resolution gets worse. Right. Because of this trade-off. Right. Uh, so we think these are probably decent size features because they're doing things like making islands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's still relatively small, but it's a lot bigger than looking for a salt dome. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so gravity is a technique, but you don't exactly just take your little Centrex and <laughs> flop it on a go, go, go to Hawaii and <laughs> or, or go out on a little boat. Really, when you're looking at global gravity signals, pretty much the best way to do it's from space. Okay, that makes uh, sense. And the coolest thing about measuring gravity from space, well, there are several ways you can do it, but the way that is the highest resolution, the most recent exciting data set, is by using two spacecraft on, uh, well, there's a, there's a GRACE mission, for example, and there are several others. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of times what you're doing is these two spacecraft are flying one ahead of the other, on the same orbital trajectory and they're using a microwave between them to measure the distance between the spacecraft to fractions of a millimeter. Okay. Yes. So imagine you come up to a gravitational high or, well, okay, let, let's, let's say we're looking for a hot spot or a plume or whatever. Um, let's say you come up to a gravitational low. Okay. So you approach this gravitational low. You're not getting pulled as tightly. You increase in altitude, which, thanks to Kepler, means you have to get faster. Mm-hmm. Yep. There you go. Yeah. So suddenly, the distance between the two spacecraft increases. Then it passes past the gravitational anomaly, comes back down to a, let's call it, nominal altitude, and the second spacecraft starts approaching that anomaly, and, it's out, and it speeds up. These are tiny, tiny, tiny variations. But because yeah. we're measuring the distance between the two spacecraft so precisely, based on how the distance between them changes, the only thing affecting that is it's the gravitational gravity. field that they're passing through. That's cool. That's cheap and easy, too. I mean, it's as cheap as space missions get, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's pretty awesome. Hmm. Okay. But once so those again, are really the... Two ways you can see these. That's that's actually pretty neat. I still think that we need temperature readings, so we need to find some weird fire animal that can go down there. And, and you know, I remember seeing years ago an image, and I cannot find this anywhere again. And I've had zero luck figuring out what author it was or anything, and I can't even remember exactly where I saw it. I'm going to guess it was at AGU early on when I went into AGU. Mm-hmm. Someone had GPR antenna that they were probing the mantle with, they thought. Really? And they were ultra, ultra low frequency to get that kind of depth. And I remember, you know those large, uh, they call them telehandlers, like great all, like the big telescoping forklift things, uh -huh. four-wheel steer? Mm-hmm. I have in my head, and I don't think I dreamed it, a very, <laughs> very clear image on a slide of somebody with great alls moving these giant antennas out in the field oh my to get different gosh. offsets maybe they were imaging like, the mantle then <laughs> like they were out in the desert somewhere it was you know super flat and they just had these giant antennas and instead of you know like when oh. we did a, a common midpoint together you would like take your antenna and each of us would take a step back and then we'd shoot right. a side or shoot a trace take a step they were doing that but with fifteen thousand pound forklifts that seems amazing i don't know if it didn't pan out or what i can find nothing oh that's too on this bad. mantle gpr work that's that, that at least looks like what i saw then that's really too bad because that sounds amazing. Just amazing. Hmm. I mean, I can imagine it being super hard. Yeah. Yes. That is true. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'm reliving, like, all the GPR surveys I've been in. And just to think about doing it that way is really cool. 
I was like, to think about how miserable it would be to not just have, you know, a 10 or 12 foot long antenna exactly. that's a pain to lift and carry around and beat the snakes away with. Exactly. <laughs> but to have one that you have to have forklifts and heavy equipment operators to oh, move. Oh, gosh. That's amazing. Just amazing. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so maybe they did image it then. Yeah. So th- that's how I think we could probably sense them. Uh, if you were going to do it, you know, probably Hawaii is a good place to go, except you're not going to drive your grade all along the ocean floor. <laughs> Watch me. <laughs> uh, that one's been around for a long time, right? Uh, yeah. So the Hawaii one's been active like 70 million years, still going. And we don't really have any, just like you said in the beginning, we don't have any feeling as humans for like how long these last, because that one's been going for 70 million years. Um, but if you wanted to get to one that is slightly more accessible, uh, Yellowstone is a big hotspot. And that bad boy is pretty young compared to that Hawaii. It's only 15 million years old. Yeah, it hadn't even had time to cause you know, global devastation yet. Just sort of global devastation. Right. Um, <laughs> and so this one is where I get myself in trouble, too, because we talk about Hawaii. I talk about good and bad volcanoes, which is probably not the best way to say it but you know (laughs) um good volcanoes you can stand next to and bad volcanoes are going to explode in massive yeah um and so yellowstone's bad because it is more silica rich because what that hot spot is coming up through is all continental crust and so the rock that's coming out of that isn't this stringy you know pohoeho basalt it's this rhyolite and it's very explosive lots of trap gases but, and this is where I get in trouble, but I've only actually gotten in trouble one time about this because that's the simple intro level explanation. But then if you look, that hotspot track of the Yellowstone hotspot, it's responsible for the Columbia River basalts. So what are those basalts yeah. doing in the middle of the continent? <laughs> mm-hmm. Life was interesting there at one point. Uh, yeah, so it's like... Well, it, basically, I, I think, like, what I've gathered, I could be really off on this. Like, you pump that hot spot just, like, volumetrically enough. And eventually, what's going to start coming out isn't just the melted continental crust, because you've already, like, melted and blown all that away. So now you're left with, like, the more mafic, plasticky rocks that are coming directly from the asthenosphere. Okay, yeah, I could I could see that. I mean, you're going to have a, a composition change over time as you work through the material above you. Right, exactly. And so now it's, you know, in the dead center of the Rockies, so you've thickened that crust uh, when you had the subduction that formed the Rockies, which was weird in and of itself. Um, and so it's got a lot of continental crust to melt. So now you've got this real scary Yellowstone caldera that's all rhyolites and real creepy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you can go lots of places to look at these things, and they, can, they you shouldn't confuse when you have a line of volcanoes um, to think of whether it's a hot spot responsible for this or not. And the difference is there are lines of volcanoes, and they're called island arc volcanoes, and those are not formed by hot spots. Right, so you have some sort of subduction zone, you get melting of the downgoing plate, and you get a bunch of rising magma, and you get this arc of volcanoes that all forms at roughly the same time. Right, and so all those are active, like the Aleutian Islands, that's ocean-ocean subduction that's happening up there. Those are all active right now, and that's the that's the clue in as to the fact that those aren't hotspot-related. Um, the Reunion Islands, those are a hotspot, the Galapagos um, and then Iceland is real weird. Yeah, that's a whole other show. Probably. <laughs> it actually probably is. We should do that. But as a teaser, because obviously we're going to do it next week, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so Iceland is both on the Mid-Ocean Ridge and it's a hot spot. So I've gotten in trouble with Iceland too. <laughs> and I've had to do a lot of readings about that because I'll have that one student that's like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Which I love. I think that's great. Um, And I actually spend a lot more time talking about Iceland now 
and the dynamics that go along with being on a mid-ocean ridge and being a hotspot. Um, and I think it actually helps the students envision these plate tectonic processes a little bit more. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, one thing that came to mind was everybody loves thermal cameras. Or Okay. Most of the people I hang out with love thermal cameras. <laughs> everybody loves uh, them. <laughs> and I don't know if you've played with one a lot, but uh, yeah. <laughs> if, if you have somebody like, say you take your socks off and walk across a tile floor, mm-hmm. you see on the thermal camera where you just were is the hottest. And then the steps before that that have been there for longer are progressively cooler. Yes. Like that's what a hot spot looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, whereas these island arcs, uh, you know, look like you had 10 different people standing there and they all took one step to the left. Yes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I've never used thermal imaging cams to describe it. I'm guessing. So it's, it's, it's one person running or 10 people doing the Cupid shuffle. <laughs> oh, man. I don't think that's the, that's the best visual for the audience that I have to teach to. But maybe for this podcast it is, though. Yeah. <laughs> Thermal cameras are amazing. <laughs> I mean, you can get them for your phone for relatively inexpensive. I know several of our listeners have them already. So, <laughs> yes. You have can. a homework assignment. <laughs> uh, now, you've got a story to tell about how the indigenous peoples probably had a pretty good idea of how hotspots worked before the 60s. Exactly. So I love this because everybody's like, oh, the 60s, that's when we figured this out. No, 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 no. Um, (laughs) The story of Pele, who, if you've been to Hawaii, I have not. We were going to go this Christmas. I don't want to talk about it. Um, (laughs) So Pele is the Hawaiian volcano goddess who lives on the big island, right? Um, And if you've been there, you've heard stories about her. And the story, her, like, origin story explains hotspots. And I love this. Um, I've included it in the show notes, and we'll put these up. Um, Herb Kane is a Hawaiian artist. He's a modern Hawaiian artist that does these amazing uh, pictures of not just Pele, but other Hawaiian gods and goddesses, too. And these pictures are really great because they blend the story of Pele and the picture of her with the true geology of the Hawaiian islands. So it's really neat. Like she holds, she's sitting cross-legged on a lake of magma and she like holds in her hand right about at her heart level. That's the magma chamber essentially. And like the top of her hair is all floated out like pohoi hoi lava. It's real cool. But her story is that she was one of a bunch of gods and goddesses that were born. This is one version of Pele's origin story. They were born, and most of her siblings were water deities, and Pele was a fire deity. And this is really interesting because their original home was in Tahiti, and there's actually some science behind Tahiti and the Hawaiian hotspot being related in some ways so she goes uh she steals her sister's boyfriend which happens in a lot of these stories sister gets mad brother says i'll take you he's the god of the waves and he takes pele out to the middle of the ocean and she digs herself a hole a volcano sister comes in and she's a storm goddess brings the waves in and puts it out so pele just moves over digs another volcano Sister puts it out, keeps going until she makes the biggest volcano she's ever made, the Big Island of Hawaii. And it's too large, and the sister can't put out her fire. And so that story, in its simplified form, like I just told it, tells about the migration of the plates, right? So they knew that the smallest and oldest volcano, you know, was the first one. And it's gone now. I mean, it's not gone now. It's dead now, extinct. And then that the Hawaiian island is the youngest and the newest. And it portrays movement because Pele's moving, just like the plate is moving over the hot spot. And I just, I think that's so cool because that's a story that's always been told by the indigenous peoples of that area. 
and they know the process, right? Like that's the process of hotspots. Yeah, you don't have to understand all of what's happening to make observations. Exactly. And that's the key to, yes, that's the key to all science, indigenous science, Western science. It's all observation. You don't have to use the word tomography to understand, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that there's a structure to the earth, right? And that that structure affects the processes that are happening that you can observe. I, I completely agree. And, you know, I think that's actually a good place to move to everybody's favorite segment <laughs> of the show. Fun Paper Friday, because this paper is all about observation. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so goats prefer positive human emotional facial expressions. Bye. This is the last fun paper you get to pick. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. You know, I've got a, I've got a really good, uh, I've had a really good run. Um, this one is, yeah, I believe you said a terrible abuse of a statistics <laughs> or something. <laughs> so we've done a lot of papers about animals that look at happy or sad faces <laughs> and mm-hmm. prefer happy faces, right? Dogs, horses, um, which is funny because a lot of these papers that have been cited in here are papers we've done as fun papers. Um, but these people are giving goats way too much credit. <laughs> in our opinion. Yes. <laughs> so they wanted to know, and this is an interesting question, like mm-hmm. dogs were bred to be companions. Mm-hmm. Yep. Horses were bred to work closely with us. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that they would have developed the ability to make some sort of emotional valence with us. Right. Yes. And there's tons of studies that say both of those things, especially dogs are acute to people's emotions. I mean, we have emotional support dogs. Uh, (laughs) Yes, we do. Both of us do. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But the question is, what about animals that were bred pretty much for production uh Mm -hmm. and i would have probably chosen you know a cow Um, Mm -hmm. but they decided to look at goats aren't if it's because goats move around a lot more right like (laughs) probably yeah Yeah. i mean it it would be hard to do this with a cow i would think with this Uh, experimental setup yes (laughs) but to me that is the definition of an animal well or a chicken yeah. No, we've Bread done the chicken production. one. We've already done that chicken paper. Oh, yeah, we have. Yeah. <laughs> Chickens prefer happy people. You're right. Yes. <laughs> so they mm-hmm. wanted to know what happens with goats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so let's just say the experimental setup. So the whole thing, just like John said, are these non-companion animals good at this? We already know chickens are. Um, and so their experimental setup is to take these pictures of sad lady, happy lady, or angry, angry lady, happy lady, angry man, sad, uh, happy man. But at first, so they put these goats in an arena and they have somebody at the front of the arena who has dried pasta. This was the the training phase, they said. Right, yeah. So this is how they start. So at the front of the arena, where they're going to eventually put these pictures, there's a person with a neutral expression looking down at the ground, offering the goats dried pasta. So if the goats didn't ever come to that person, they got kicked out of the study. Um, Right. (laughs) So they trained for a while, like four times or something like that. And a lot of the goats got kicked out of the study, right? Yeah, they did. Um can we talk about the fact this place is called Buttercup's Sanctuary for Goats? <laughs> yeah. And also, <laughs> the best part of this paper is that these goats that they did use were between the ages of 3 and 19. <laughs> Which is crazy. Yeah, did you know that? That's the most that I learned from this paper is that goats can live to 19. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I bet they're awfully tough by that point. Oh, so surly. Um... So then the experimental part is that they have these two screens, square metal meshes. I guess the goats would eat screens. I don't know. (laughs) And they present a face on, they did it the same gender, right? So an angry face and a happy face of a man or woman 
both of them were the same gender. And they basically just watched the goats and saw which one they like walked up to. And they, which they videotaped them with a very specific model of handycam. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I did find, I mean, they said that they, um, that the person who led the goat into the arena randomized the side of the goat that they walked on. Right. To avoid cueing the goat in any way. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't a spot. Well, that will come up later. Oh, no, there is. The entrance is on the left side. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so which one did they go to and which, like, picture did they hang out under <laughs> more? And it turns out that if the happy person was on the right, they hung out there. But that's about it, right? <laughs> well, and even a little more than that. If the happy person was on the left, they hung out there statistically less than half the time, mm-hmm. which is not a no result. Yes. As is insinuated. Yes, correct. 50-50 is random. Significantly less or significantly more than 50-50 is a result. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the fact that they hung out significantly less. Now, granted, the error bar does cross... The 50-50 line. (laughs) Yes. But they hung out significantly less. Okay, I'm going to stop saying the word significantly because that has meaning in this context. (laughs) It sure does. (laughs) They hung out less if the positive face was on the left side. Mm -hmm. And way more. I I can use the word here. Significantly more if the person were on the right so to me, <laughs> to me, this result suggests that it has very little to do with the face and very much to do with the fact that they probably saw the image on the right first when they came in. Correct. And so they do, even though they don't address that, they do eventually have like a, a sentence down here that said it's been shown that like horses show a bias to their right eye or something like that. I don't know if you well, found that sentence. Well, and I have to wonder, too, you know, like, okay, so what is it, about 10% of our population's left-handed, somewhere mm-hmm. in there, 10, 15%? Right. I mean, how <laughs> many goats are left-hooved? I, I don't know. I, I don't, I've only colored with a few goats, so I don't <laughs> Yeah. Like, uh-huh. to, to me, there has to be some dominant side in probably most organisms. Right. And I think that's, like, they have this hypothesis, and they proved it but not really they actually had a different result and that's the result they should have focused on right right yeah to me this while it may not statistically rule out the hypothesis it looks unlikely yes especially when they say that goats actually were more likely to interact first with images on the right regardless of the image so like to me that's like okay well then right obviously none of this matters like, whether it's statistically significant or not, the difference between the left and right is statistically significant, which is a result. Right. Correct. <laughs> and, I mean, so th- we're talking about mean values here of, like, 0. 0.4, 0. 0.3 and change to 0. 0.8. hmm Not small differences. Correct. So, yeah, I, I unfortunately thought there was a decent cognitive dissonance in this paper mm-hmm. yep i would agree yeah just the actual result was kind of buried right uh so i thought it was really interesting results yes yes there was a result exactly it wasn't exactly what they put out to prove but also that's just like you said it's not a null result but uh I don't know if you can say that goats definitely like happy people. Right. So here's a couple sentences. However, no preference was found when the positive faces were placed on the left side. We show that animals domesticated for production can discriminate human facial expressions. Those are two directly following each other sentences that to me are not necessarily cause and effect. Yes, correct. That is correct. So while an interesting endeavor and what I imagine was a hilarious 
<laughs> experimental phase. <laughs> eh. Right. I don't know if goats care that much. And I'm not going to say that. I mean, this happens in all sciences, right? Oh, 100%. Uh, I mean, I'm sure in geology we have plenty of... We think, we think hotspots look like this. We did a bunch of seismic interpretation, and we found what we think. But right. somebody else can look at it and go, that's not at all what you think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because seismic is non-unique. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, this does lend to the importance of good peer reviews, right? And running stuff by people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and being willing to adapt your your mental model. Right. Based on results. The data are the data. And like you said, there's there's a signal in this data. It's just not what you originally thought. And how many fun papers have we done where people are like, this is what we set out to prove, but oh my gosh, this is what we found. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other thing too is, I mean, they did have to kick out a lot of data. <laughs> because <laughs> goats are terrible <laughs> they kicked out a lot of goats and then of the goats they retained they kicked out something like 16 percent of that data yeah because in some trials the goats just wandered yeah because there was no person with pasta there so they didn't care anymore <laughs> so i mean it may be a very large part of it the experimental subjects just weren't cooperative either mm-hmm. yeah i mean goats suck I love goats, I'm going to say that, but I love them because they're cantankerous, so I can't imagine trying to do a study with goats. We had a neighbor that had one for a while. It was quite interesting. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. We have neighbors that, the big boar goats, the big meat goats, they raise those. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you've got data on if your animal of choice prefers positive or negative faces, regardless of what side of the room you put them on. Shannon, how can they send in that data? Please. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Uh, occasionally we're on Slack. You should come in there. Um, we're the Don't Panic channel of the Software Underground. And as always, thank you for supporting us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us, you can do so as well. Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 